How can digital technologies strengthen our democracies? This is the question we will dive into during this mini podcast series together with the European Forum Altbach. We will interview three members of Rethink Alliances, a democracy initiative the Forum launched together with the Mercator Foundation. This year's topics are the fundamentals of democracy and whether they are threatened by recent events ranging from financial crisis, the rise of populism, climate change and most recently the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello everyone, I'm Lucas from Decentrum. We are a young Swiss organization that inquires about the consequences that digitalization has for us as a society. We are going to complement the online panels of the forum with podcasts that focus not only on the threats, but also on the chances that change brings with it. To think about a future that is not only possible, but desirable. Our third and last guest that is here today with us is Bailey Richardson, who was introduced to us as one of Instagram's first employees. This seemed exciting, but when we did some research, we quickly realized that what she's doing right now is even more thrilling for this podcast series. With her business, she's helping to build communities around the world. Hello, Bailey. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Could you tell us a bit more about the people and company? Yeah, absolutely. A couple years ago, three or four years ago, People and Company, which is a company that I run with two other partners, Kai and Kevin, it's formed in part because we had a question, which was we had each started and helped cultivate communities that were very modern, that were global um, and, and kind of empowered by the internet in many ways. Uh, eBay, Instagram, and Creative Mornings, we'd all been early employees there and seen communities of passionate users and, and chapter hosts take something that started in a small place and grow all around the world. And from that kind of foundational experience being so remarkable for each of us, a lot of people asked us, how did you do that? How did you grow a community like that? And I think all of us felt that we could only give limited answers from our one experience of what we had done at each of these different companies. And we really wanted to get better at teaching people and helping people who wanted to invest in communities be able to do that because it had honestly been so meaningful for each of us to see people raise their hands to go on a journey with you or to support you or to volunteer or to help out. At Instagram, we had people hosting Insta meets, which were photo get-togethers all around the world, completely out of passion and volunteer energy. It's, it's just a remarkable experience to feel like you're building with a group of people, not for them. And so we want to help more people do that. And I don't know if this is true in, in Europe, um, in all the different countries as it is in the United States, but since we started People and Company a few years ago on this journey of, of trying to help teach more people how to build communities, the word community has also become um, used more and more here. It's sort of a buzzword, but I think in, increasingly with less and less understanding by, by what we actually maybe mean by <laughs> that word community, it's, it's sort of a buzzword without clear specificity behind it. And our, our whole goal is to help people get clear on, yes, what that word means and also how to build communities. What are the steps involved? If you want to start tomorrow, what should you do? If you're midway through building a community, what are your priorities? And really make that simple and accessible for anyone uh, who, who's passionate about such a thing. 
So that's that's what we started a few years ago. We do some work with companies and organizations who have a thriving community. Maybe they're a sports company and they have run clubs or a car company and they have driver's clubs or maybe they're a, a nonprofit and they have a volunteer community who leads local chapters. We come in and help those companies get smarter about the problems that they're facing or the opportunities they have with our company, People and Company. And then we've also published a book and have a podcast both called Get Together, which help anyone who's interested in building community get more both information and guidance and also inspiration from the stories of others who have built benevolent modern communities. Perfect. That's so nice. I'm super interested to talk about how this comes together with democracies. But I think on your website, you also say that Building a resilient and vibrant community, it is important to not build it for, but with the members. Yeah. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, in the process of writing a book, we we actually wrote something that we thought was going to be a series of essays. And then we were like, oh, this is a book. We're going to put this all together. <laughs> and we felt this strong need to create an anchor. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the one thing we're really teaching people here? And the language that we finally hit on, which I think we all intuitively understood, but but didn't have words for until we were in this book writing process, is that what community building is, is progressive acts of collaboration. Mm-hmm. So you may start as the first host, or you may open the Facebook group or the Slack channel, but if this community is going to thrive or sustain itself, other people need to be in key roles, need to have responsibility and we were talking about this, about the etymology even of the word community. But one one version of the etymology, I believe in old French, actually, the, the term meant joint ownership, mm-hmm. communite. And so this this a great community builder knows that although you may build for in the very beginning, your job is to do as many acts of collaboration and bring more and more people into the process at every stage as you can. And so especially I think maybe because of our experiences working at companies or uh, other ways of running projects, we're really stuck in a mindset of building for. It's very hard, I think, for people to think about empowering others instead of just doing things all for people. And that's the big thing that we try to teach people to do is to say not how can I do this? How can I work with my people to do this key step in building our community? Who are my partners? What am I asking them to do? And within the sort of, I think, world of democracy, I often think, at least in the United States, small leadership roles within democracy are really lacking. There's a sense that unless you're a professional, like running a campaign, or maybe you do this, uh, as I think, Tank, in your day-to-day work, or you're a journalist, Mm -hmm. or you're a politician, or you work on a campaign, it's, it's hard to know what a role is for an ordinary citizen or like what is my way of showing up and participating. And so I, I've really gotten quite passionate about this idea of developing our muscles to make small leadership roles for other people to join and participate into social endeavors, whether it is the political arena, whether it's a local run club and you want more run leaders, whether it's an online Slack channel and you want more moderators. But I think breaking off leadership roles, giving people an opportunity to co-own a group is a crucial, crucial step and something that a lot of folks have a hard time switching into that paradigm of thinking not how do I build for others, but how do I build with them? 
So you mean that actually you want people to become leaders within that community? Yes, absolutely. And we talked about resilient and vibrant as two words we use to describe communities. I think that you can only really be in particular resilient if there's not just one leader. When there's one leader, it's a bottleneck. We, we've talked to some sort of associations and groups. Um, one man named Gavin Preter Penny, who started a cloud appreciation society. He's a designer. And there's like tens of thousands of people who joined this cloud appreciation society. And it's literally people who love observing the clouds and just taking a moment in their day to look up and think, wow, that is magic that's right above us and noticing it. And He's a designer and he has sort of a, a pent towards controlling a lot of the things like and hasn't given much, broken off much responsibility to different people. Are there chapter leads? Are there other folks posting the content? Like other people haven't taken on responsibilities. And he's realized that he's become quite a bottleneck. And he, it, the, the reach of the group will only go as far as he can. And so I think you know, if, if an original leader leaves or becomes less compelling or errs, that's a great risk for a community. And so having more leaders spreading out ownership encourages some of that resilience that these groups may need. And I think it also makes them more vibrant. We're trying to build, especially in the United States, more diverse groups. And you need leaders that look like different people, have different personal stories. If you want to connect more authentically to more people, you can't just be one profile of person or one background and really resonate um, with an in, a large group of people in the most authentic or sincere, compelling way. So, yeah, I think leaders are really crucial. Having many different leaders is, is a really crucial part of building both the resiliency and the vibrancy, the, like, the power and passion within a community. All right. Yes, this is something I was really interested to hear about because when we exchanged emails and you wrote back that you think one topic is how important leaders are for communities, we thought of this as kind of counterintuitive because you think like, oh, a community is like everyone is the same level and equal votes and shares. But now I understand better. You think that you need as many leaders as possible. So you build a resilient community as not a community that dies off if like the one leader just leaves or is gone for good. Then talking about democracies, I see already so many connecting dots. If you have a democracy that is vibrant and resilient, first of all, I guess that is pretty much what we would want. Like something that you are, that is engaging, that you want to be part of. And also a resilient democracy, of course, that can defend itself against some struggles. In the last podcast, we have talked to Joanna Rajinska. She works with the Beacon Project. And the Beacon Project is a project that tries to bring light onto what Russia is doing at the moment or other countries are doing in Europe, trying to undermine democracies with disinformation campaigns and trying to further rip apart the community and try to get in there. And she put it like this, they, they're not making the wound, but they're putting salt in it. And I think that we exactly need those resilient communities and resilient democracies to, to work together. What other connecting possibilities do you see with your work if we talk about the topic of this podcast series, how can mm. digital technologies strengthen democracies? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think hearing you just bring up this disinformation campaign 
one community that uh, I got to meet the founder of came to mind. Um, maybe you've heard of it. It's in, translated into English called the I Am Here community, mm-hmm. but it started in Sweden. Um, and I actually met this this woman who started it, Mina Dennert, which in Swedish, I think she says it slightly differently. And I apologize, like Mina. She's an immigrant and she came and started experiencing in Sweden, seeing people on Facebook post things that she knew. It was like neighbors saying quite racist things. And she began to leave comments. She, she decided, I'm going to make my face seen. She's a woman of color. And kind of make sure that they know that what they're saying is being seen and read by someone like myself. Something she could have just done herself once. Instead, what she did is she started seeing other, other people who were passionate about what she was doing. She's a journalist. She wrote about it. People raised their hand and said they wanted to do the same thing. And she's now coordinated thousands of people in different languages. There are Facebook groups for different countries. And they're sort of like the anti-troll army, I think is what they call themselves. And so they actually monitor and see, are there journalists that are being attacked on Twitter and Facebook? Are there people that are pushing pro-democracy messages that are either by robots or by real people being sort of targeted? Because that's what the alt-right is doing, right? That's what the extremists are doing. And she's doing it for, for a benevolent positive future, for a supportive future, for a more inclusive future. So she's kind of made all these small leaders through digital organizing. They're not in her own town. Like she didn't, she didn't happen to meet them at the coffee shop. Like there are other people online who are scared of what they're seeing and want to do something about it. And Mina put out a signal, found more of those folks and empowered them and connected them to each other. And so I think that that there are little actions like that, that when you start to think about yourself as a leader in the way that Nina did, which is, I'm not just doing this for myself because alone we're limited, right? Our capacity is limited, but with more people, we can expand our impact. And she realized that, saw other passionate people and created roles for them, created like a sandbox for them to come in and contribute. And so that's been very inspiring for me, um, just in terms of kind of a story and maybe the political space of, of building leaders. But I think the other thing that I might mention that has has also moved me here in the United States um, around community building and things I think we can we can see as an overlap between the two worlds. The Sunrise Movement here in the United States has really pushed the climate conversation, and I'm not sure if people in Europe know a lot about it, but these are basically, it's similar to the Extinction Rebellion in some way. But they're young kids who are going into the halls of Congress, sitting down in Nancy Pelosi's office, making demands, organizing on local levels. They're renting homes in different cities and all living together and taking years off of college and fully, like a lot of these kids are under the age of 21 and are organizing about climate change. And something that really stands out to me about them, a whole chapter of our book is about identity and it's about cultivating identity and I think sometimes we see in the political space, at least here in a very corporate democracy sort of setting in the United States, it's almost like, um, you know, I think Hillary Clinton, a lot of her like logo and branding stuff and like her identity felt like a product launch, like it felt like a Pepsi Cola <laughs> commercial. And what I see with Sunrise, and I see this with Bernie Sanders as well, is human expression, vibrant human expression coming through in these campaigns, individuals putting their own stamp and remix into the emotional side of politics. 
with the Sunrise Movement in particular, they have songs. You know, that was something that was huge in the civil rights movement in the United States. And the kids in the Sunrise Movement sing almost always when they are together. And and I think that that has also really stood out to me. Um, If we get too far away from our own humanity in these political actions that we take, if we get too far away from the emotion, from the soul, from the jubilance of, of trying earnestly with other human beings to change the world. And that that is what art is all about. Artists are striving and expressing themselves. And politics has that. But I sometimes feel like we are getting, we're just copying what the biggest politicians in the land are doing and not taking that soul into our work. And so I think that's another thing that I would just mention is any thriving community has its own traditions, its own rituals, its own language. Um, and, and I see, I see communities politically, whether it's like for a campaign like Bernie Sanders or for a movement like the Sunrise Movement or for Black Lives Matter here in the United States, they have sayings, they have catchphrases, they have song, they have, uh, you know, things that people wear. And I think that that's really important and it's okay for it to be grassroots. Like, in fact, I think it might be better at this stage. So those are two things that stand out to me. Just again, I think it's possible even in small group efforts like to make leaders and to see how you can find other people who align with you and empower them like Mina from Sweden. And then also just like bring in the soul, like don't shy away from that piece, especially on progressive side. I think, you know, that that piece, I think, is such a big part of our history. And, and I hope that it stays vibrant going forward. I love to hear about those movements. It's it's good to hear that so much is happening. I didn't know about the young environmentalist movement. I'm totally going to look that up. Uh, you've been one of uh, Instagram's first, very first employees. And the social media tools that we use nowadays, in the beginning, a lot of people had big hopes for them when it comes to democracy. Those hopes, well, let's say, have shifted. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know... It's, it's a big question because our online lives are so massive and the internet is so massive. I sometimes think it's like a four-dimensional object. Like we, none of us really understand it. And so it's, it's hard to simplify and, and completely like slice into the problem with, with a really strong perspective sometimes for me. Like I, I feel like I've, I've seen how big it is and I know there's so many different ways people are communicating using the internet. With social media in particular, I think one of the big challenges has just been the algorithmic feed. I, I, that's like that's an abstract concept as well, right? It's something that even I, who have worked in technology, don't fully understand how it functioned. There's about one or two engineers at the entire company who fully understand this code, and some of it has machine learning in it. And so there's a lot of complexity to it, and I think there's a lot of challenge in bridging explaining to the public exactly what goes on. But I think when you really boil it down for me, what I see is when I started working on Instagram in the beginning, the platform didn't have an algorithm and we didn't have ads. And it felt to me like people knew their knew the stories they were sharing were being seen and they kind of knew who was seeing the information. And Instagram in those early days there wasn't all good on it. We saw all sides of what happened on Instagram, but 
there was an amount of people sharing things they were excited by or passionate about or experiences they had that were meaningful to them and being able to connect with other people who shared those passions who maybe they'd never met or were on the other side of the world or the other side of the country. And I think that was really exciting. And and the reality is, is once a company becomes a business, that's the social media, the current model for doing that is to do it as mostly an ad-based business. They're not all that way, but a lot of times that's the best financial opportunity that's viable right now. And to me, what ends up happening is you basically turn these social medias into the equivalent of like malls, like they become marketplaces. And so it used to be in the very beginning that the thing that we could do that was the best thing for Instagram's future and success was to make the platform the most valuable as possible for our users. And that means that they have meaningful, valuable social interaction, right? You don't want to walk away being like, oh, that was painful or like dark or soul sucking. Like that's not going to be good for the future of our little company. But right now the reality is users on these platforms are actually not the business. They're not the primary stakeholders. And that tension is where the challenge is. If the users disappear, the business disappears but they're not the ones paying these companies to survive and determining their futures. So the key stakeholder is businesses. And the key stakeholder are people that are paying to use Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all these different companies like billboards. And I think that that the market running democracy or affecting our social ties The market in the United States has encroached on virtually everything. I think that's one of the big threats to the future of democracy, even if you put social media to the side, if you put the internet to the side. But to me, we have another space, which is where we spend a lot of time to imagine our shared reality, to imagine our society, to imagine our fellow citizens, which is now market-driven. And I I think that that's just scary. I, I often think as an American... I honestly like look at Europe and I see social democracies where some things are held sacred, like healthcare or the welfare state. And I wonder how that happens because America really struggles to do anything as a principle or a value above the markets. And so I think that that tension is just showing up in social media as well. I, I'm not a student of democracy in the level that you are. And so I'd, I'd love to also hear any take you have on this as well. But I think that that's just extremely concerning when you put the markets above the people and you put profit above the people. How could a democracy survive? I, I, I don't understand that piece. But yeah, that, that's, that's sort of I see these platforms have initially being made. They will only succeed if they put the user first. And then they do this artful switch where they basically become for businesses. And, and that's the, the agenda. And, and I think that's, we've seen that in other parts of politics and it's, I don't think the outcome is healthy for democracy. But don't you think that this perspective could be a bit too close to the perspective or idea those social media companies want to push while, when they're saying that they are a platform and it's not their fault if users are putting up some kind of content, but then on the other hand are saying towards 
advertisers that are paying a lot of money. This is all our content. You can use whatever is on there because it, we basically own it. Taking away this profit and then not taking the responsibility of what is happening there. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the responsibility piece is, is also kind of like in this whole, for me, as an American seeing like anything that's a social question, it's as if we just like refuse to engage in that complexity and we just like default to whatever the public market <laughs> or our investors say we have to do. And that's how the public market works, right? Like they, you, they actually sign, these CEOs are like bound to do whatever will drive the most profit. But I think there's also something in tech culture in particular, like in in the minds of someone who thinks in code, where these ideas of social complexity, we they almost always, I think, engineers tend to think about how do I write better software or better features instead of like, how do I handle a sticky human situation? It's as if like the corner where you write code is like a very safe, pristine, clean, rational land, and that's where people thrive. And so often they just kind of keep writing code or like try to write perfect code to solve problems and don't actually get into like the messy, sticky stuff. And I, I see that um, in Mark Zuckerberg's sort of demeanor and, and his like way of approaching the world. And I think there's a lot of other people in Silicon Valley this way. Their background is in thinking about the world as like perfect algorithms and perfect lines of code and one beautiful solution solving problems for everyone. But society is complicated and messy and humans are complicated. And so I think there's there's this failure in general to even believe that society can have clear points of view and that like that problem like has been pushed so far away in favor of this safe product land. And that disengagement, I think, is it needs to be pressured from culture. And I think some of that is happening. Like the, there have been shifts in these tech leaders' points of view at Reddit, at, at Facebook, at Instagram. And most of, yeah, they can go further, most absolutely. But I think this is where when the public can make these people who work at these companies or the leaders feel ashamed, that's what creates a sense of responsibility. They don't want to be the bad guys all the time and neither do their employees. So I don't know that I answered your question, but I think responsibility and the responsibility of companies outside of just profit is one of the big things that I think is like driving this issue because there are possibly major implications with mental health. There's possibly major implications with the democracy, like with our democracies, but until they're held accountable for those things, until there's responsibility they don't really actually have to solve those problems. There has to be pressure. Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. You've also mentioned healthcare and this concept of like how public healthcare is such a logical thing in Europe and in the States it's not. Might be a similar idea of like free market belief in the States versus Europe where we still have more regulations in place and people tend to choose that way a bit more. Do you think that putting more regulations on those, let's call them online community places, would help? Or do you think that is too short-sighted? In terms of, yeah, in terms of external pressure on that. Exactly, yes. 
Ooh, great question. I mean, I, <laughs> yes, like everyone in technology is going to be like, she said that. Oh no. <laughs> it's, it's really complicated though, right? Like it's yeah. not, that's, that's a very complicated process because at least in the United States, I see one big issue we have is there's such a massive gap between the government's understanding of technology. And so what I see is technology evolving at warp speed. Like I said, the internet's already a four-dimensional object and we have a hard time grasping it. And I think I, I had heard that neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump in 2016 used a computer. Like they didn't, they only use their smartphones. They don't even actually know like interfaces. And so if that's what we're dealing with, we're dealing with a gap that large. Like, I don't even know if it's government regulation that is the most effective. And so it's, it's a really complicated process. But I absolutely think that one of the biggest pieces that I think is interesting with regards to the internet and regulation and again, this is not my area of expertise. So if you're listening, you can please be like, oh, this girl's just going off. But I'm, I'm amazed at how large they've allowed these companies to get. The amazing thing about software is you can remake it. If everyone left Facebook, like tomorrow, we all decided we're not going to use it again. Someone starting a small company could build a tool in an instant. It's a brand new company. It's not like laying the water pipes. Like it's not like building roads. Like it is just code. I think I've seen engineers that I think are smart, are vigilant, are ethical, are competent. And software can be reborn over and over and over again. But what I see has happened in the social sphere is a few companies own everything, <laughs> like everything between China and the United States, everything. And that is scary because it prevents competition. It prevents smaller people from being able to create new spaces, which might be more ethical given what we know now, which might be built from the beginning in a different way with more considerations than what we knew when Facebook was started, what, like 15, 20 years ago? I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah. And so I think that that's scary because... Facebook is dealing with like, they weren't built with the things in mind that we know now. What we know now versus 2000, what was that, 2005? We know so much more. And if someone started a company today that solved some of our social problems or like was more thoughtful, I think they could do such a better job. And I think software should be able to be reborn and reborn and reborn but we have people who like are trying to hold on tight to their position at the top of the leaderboard. And we have governments who have completely enabled you to buy your way to like own the space. And so I think about regulation, maybe less on the policy level from like the government in, although I think there are spaces where that is important. It's just like hard to have visibility into the problems and their nature and to make sure the communication flow is good. But I think the biggest thing that I think about from as someone who worked on these teams is I wish that there was more room for young entrepreneurs who do have good ideas to actually eat some of the market and to change what we have available to ourselves. And I'm worried that that has been like precluded by the power and consolidation of these companies. Did you support the idea of Warren to break up big tech? Yes. Talking about this totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, I do. And, you know, again, like this isn't my complete area of expertise, but yeah, 
I, I, I absolutely think that these companies should be, should have less power. I just, especially in software, like, I think there are some arguments where you say, oh, maybe these like plane companies that have been around for like a hundred years, they're like flying people in the air. Like maybe they have some like proprietary knowledge about how to like build planes or like, you know, like there's some things where like technology and proprietary knowledge, you don't want a bunch of startups designing like surgical tools or something. But it's just software. Like, like let people break it up. Like, let people change it. And and that's that's sort of like my perspective is especially in that space. Like these things, these things aren't like really truly like sacred public infrastructure. They can pop up and shut down overnight. Some of them. Yeah. 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 We are sitting here remotely because of also because you're far away, but also because of the <laughs> corona pandemic that yeah. is still going on. A pandemic that has forced many people to work remotely, to, to have meetings remote. Um, for some, this was amazing. They could work from home. For many, also people that we know, it's been a big struggle. Did you see any of those topics that you just talked about, like how those communities work together, being accentuated um, or things that went better or worse during this time? Yeah, yeah. Such a crazy thing that's happened. I'm honestly yeah. still like amazed that this is the reality that we're living in. And it's interesting. We we published our book a year ago, and it's funny to go back to a year ago because so many communities at that time have at and, and in the modern world have online and offline components. So a lot of people who are in a Slack channel, like they might eventually meet each other in person um, and vice versa. A lot of like offline communities, like basketball teams have some kind of like online tools that they're using. In a short time, we've basically gone from a world where all communities were in person to, oh, we're like maybe a little bit of both to you have no other option, no other option. It, it, to me, I often think about technology as a tool not to create a separate world, but to help me make my reality better. I sort of like lean into technologies that help me make my like three-dimensional lived life more enjoyable or like more sometimes efficient. I think a lot of the people that have read our book or listened to our podcast are people that felt similarly, like saw we're trying to use technology to help support people getting to know other people or gathering people, maybe in person. And so it's been interesting because I think there are adjustments that you can make. And, and I definitely can share some of those two of just ways to make our virtual life right now and the communities that you're a part of something to sustain without being like a total burnout of just like firing up Zoom. And, and you know, there are tips and tricks there that I can share. But I think it's worth just like acknowledging too that a lot of people do still enjoy meeting up with other human beings in person. And they, you know, we talk to some community leaders and we try to brainstorm with them about how they can like patch the gap or like kind of put the band-aid over what's happening right now. But a lot of those folks are like, you know, I just I do this because I don't want to just spend time on my computer interacting with people. <laughs> and I, I host a community for that reason. And so it's it's just kind of sad. Like I prefer that. And so I, I think that is sad to me. And there, there's an element of, there's only so much we can do to like patch that over right now and in a truly safe way. And, and I think in terms of democracy, I did a project where we were trying to 
think through how to recreate the experience of the library. It's like in terms of democracy, I think a really beautiful symbol of, you know, a place where all different types of people coexist and they're they're there sort of for self-betterment and just like a positive, open public space. And they've been closed, you know, here in New York for a long time. And for many people, it the library may be the place they have access to computers and the internet and, you know, information that they intentionally go seek out instead of just get kind of hit with. And so sort of like thinking about how to, what can we do with like online <laughs> tools to help people who had been in libraries? And, and I think that there's no perfect solution, but I do think this is where it's all about training people who are the leaders of these small group sessions on Zoom or on Google Hangouts or whatever, the things that really are trying to replicate in-person experiences to know some of the basics of, of community building, of, of making sure everybody has the opportunity to participate and connect with each other one-on-one and some of those little details of, of facilitation, of being a leader can make a really big difference, especially if you're trying to just make people who are stuck at home feel less isolated. Um, so I think those those pieces of the main things we took away was what can we build that will help train people who are leading these meetings that used to happen at the libraries now online? And, and how do we train these like sort of small leaders to bring as much value as possible? I do think there's some sadness that's like worth acknowledging of a lot of people still do like to go play soccer with their friends or play cards or whatever. And there's there there's a lot that is lost by not being able to do that. And we should be angry and we should be sad about that. And especially in the United States, we should be angry about not being able to do that. And I think the best thing we can do is 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 do what we can as leaders or to do what we can if we do know how to facilitate or to help people feel the most value as possible online to share that information and to seek it out. There's, uh, we've uh, in the beginning mm. talked about Burning Man, one of the biggest festivals and also communities, a very vibrant and very resilient community in many ways. And one of the principles is each one teach one. Did you ever hear of that? I am not sure, but please tell me. So the idea is that it's not just about learning, but also about instantly starting to teach whatever you learn and giving um, to everyone to empowering people. Yeah, I'm not sure whether I picked this up at Africa Burn or Burning Man, but I think it's it's one of the principles. Would you agree to this concept? Yeah, and I think it goes back a little bit to this idea of like building with. One of the things we try to get community leaders to do is if they're trying to start a community They kind of know who might be in it and like why that community is getting together. Maybe it's for emotional support or like a hobby or learning. Um, the The next thing that we get them to do is come up with like, what might the, the community do together? What's the shared activity? And immediately we want them to like run it by one of the people in the community because it's an iterative process by nature. Community building is, is an iterative process. And I think we learn better when we're like getting live feedback and interacting with people we're trying to serve. Um, so I don't know if that's exactly the same as sort of going straight from doing into teaching, but I do think like getting um, inputs, getting feedback and 
trying to build teams and like <laughs> build consensus around anything you're trying to create is is really important and um, it doesn't happen naturally. You actually have to like get out there and and like ask someone and put the time aside and set up the conversation or whatever. Yeah. We are meeting in under a project called Rethink Alliances here, which is a spin-off from the European Forum Altbach. And the idea of Rethink Alliances is to strengthen the democracies in Europe, but also by working together. Because in Europe, we have a lot of nationalist movements at the moment that gain a lot of strength, which is also happening pretty much around the world at the moment. Why do you think it's important to collaborate, not only nationwide, but global way in these times? I got to go to Rethink Alliances last year, so perhaps we were both... Oh, nice. Yeah, okay. yeah, so perhaps we were both in the same room. One thing that really stood out to me, I was in the room, it was pre-COVID, and there were people, like you said, from Bratislava, from London, from the Balkans, from like all over Europe, and... I think I was one of just maybe a handful of Americans. And so I was pretty aware of the fact that I was from this other land far away and I was witnessing a continent that I wasn't necessarily a part of talk about these issues and learning a lot about other places. But what stood out to me most was that progressives actually across the world have, like you said, similar threats, similar concerns. The specificity is different, like the exact nature in each place is slightly different. But a lot of the fears and a lot of the dreams are pretty similar. And I think we have maybe inherited a nationalist relationship to our politics because we vote nationally and also maybe just because of history. But I feel like the progressive movement has a lot to gain by seeing the strength and the alignment of people around the world pouring out with shared points of view. Especially in the United States, I was in New York City when the Black Lives Matter protests just erupted and was out on the streets. And it was so uplifting to see people in European cities, like out there doing the same thing. I think race is something, our history, especially with Black Americans, is is heavy. It's a deep thing that is shameful and difficult. And I, I realized how many countries deal with that exact same issue of some form, some kind of like caste-like system, some type of ignoring our history that is so widespread. And it's a major block for progressives if we don't talk about it openly and we don't like make that a priority. And so just to say like Black Lives Matter to me, I thought that was such an American thing. And it went, it spread everywhere. And it was one of the moments where I felt the most energized about the, the progressive agenda, the progressive point of view in my entire life. And so I think just it's it's a scary time right now. And so I think the more that we can show unity beyond even the national level and our own sort of like nitpicking of issues um, and see progressives across the country, see pro-democracy, see like pro-social democracy, folks across the world pushing and talking about similar issues. I think the environment and the people who have been pushing for the environment, the kids have also been showing us how to do this. I think our spirit needs a boost. And sometimes like the national level, we get frustrated by the people who have different opinions from us and the complexity of like the bridges that we have to build in our own countries. And sometimes I think like lifting your head up at the periscope and looking around and seeing a lot of other people out there feel like this, even in totally different parts of the world is, 
it, it was really uplifting for me. So yeah, I think to see beyond the national level is, is just sort of like enriching for our souls in some ways. Yeah, I totally agree. For us, seeing this Black Lives Matter movement first in the States, but then swapping over to Europe and people not being like pointing fingers at the US, but instead looking inside the country and being like, well, this is actually happening here as well. It might be in different ways. It might be in different numbers, but it's still happening. It's been happening for way too long. Let's act now is one of the most, yes, engaging things that has happened this year for us as well. And I hope we can spark those things, especially now that we are, yes, as Alpach is putting it, our democracies are under pressure or threatened and we're looking towards the presidential campaign in the States and towards many important political discussions in Europe. And let's hope that we can bring everyone together and work on this digitally and also hopefully in person when this pandemic is, is over again. Yeah. 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 And I think hearing you talk and thinking about this, it's, it just reminds me of, you know, I know trust is a big part of a strong democracy. And in the United States, I think one of, there's been a fracturing on the side of the left as well, because I think there are groups in this country who feel left out or hurt and unacknowledged. And those issues have been unaddressed. And so I think to see the, the left try to be honest and vulnerable and open to change and acknowledging new voices globally, especially the younger generation, I think is so important if we want the left to be strong. Like we need to be brutally honest and willing to change and acknowledging our errors um, because that's the only way we're going to grow and fulfill our promise. And so I think we need to restore some of the trust and unity amongst progressive thinkers, like amongst people who believe in, in a unified society. But we can only do that if I think, you know, the societies are really acknowledging the ways we've harmed people in the past. So, yeah, I think hearing that of just we need to be honest, too, um, on our side of things is, is so important. But you think that Joe Biden is the right person to do that in the presidential campaign now? Ooh. <laughs> You know, you, you're going to expose how radical I am. Um, it's so hard. I don't, I'm not yeah. excited to vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. But yeah, I, I, no, I don't, I don't think he's, he's like the dream candidate. And um, I, I'm much more on the side of like the Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez side of this world. And um, I'm like much more in the camp of like radical change and, and radical acknowledgement of some of the pain that has happened in this country in the last like neoliberal er era, very deep conversation. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of conversation right now amongst people and the level of sort of how revolutionary they are about what to do with their vote. Um, I'm in a position where I, I sort of, I'm just like Noam Chomsky said to like vote for Biden and see it as one battle and keep fighting the war. And so that's, that's what I'm going to be doing. Yeah. But I was, I was totally ready for Elizabeth Warren to be my, my president. Um, but yeah, that's the challenge of all of this, right. Is compromise and like trying to just like move move your own personal battles through and also find unity in important moments so i am i will be falling in line and voting for joe biden um but not as enthusiastically as possible yeah 
Perfect. Yes, I guess we can take this as a as a final statement. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I feel like this was our own little small act of building a bridge um, between two people who have some strong similarities in what they believe is important to work for in the world and shared purpose. So it's always really special. And I think without, I guess in some ways, let's without podcasting technology, without Zoom, you and I never have this conversation. And um so doing these things intentionally to really connect with other people who are far away from you, it, it can be so wonderful and special and, and something we could never do before. So just it's really been meaningful to me to get to meet people in Vienna and like to be a part of Altbach and to have my horizons expanded and inspired by the earnestness with which many people are working towards promoting democracy across this world. Um, so I think there are ways we see a lot of the darker side of things in the news, but we can forge these uplifting spaces ourselves. And so thank you for hosting this podcast and for bringing me on. Thank you for, for being here. It's been a pleasure. This was Bailey Richardson, our last interviewee for this podcast series of the European Forum Altbach. She has written a book about communities, as she's mentioned. You can look it up. It's called Get Together, right? Yes. And she also has a podcast series with, I don't know how many hundred podcasts. It's an uncountable <laughs> amount. We're not, so, we're so not too you can crazy. Dive in there. Yeah. I don't know. And it's so many, you know, it's, it's yeah. I don't know. You're like at it's a lot. 60 I think or something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. We've been going. And one that I might spotlight is there's a really great recent podcast we did um, with a group called Letters for Black Lives. Oh, okay. And mm -hmm. Uh, it's part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but it was um, a lot of Asian American and Asian Canadian immigrants who want have helped create templates mm -hmm. and guides for having hard conversations with your parents about race. Oh wow! Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. That super so interesting. it's all these tools, technology-based tools yeah. of like scripts in different languages, YouTube videos in these languages, so that you can speak to your parents and their native tongue about the issue. Um, but it's just amazing what a bunch of young people spun up on the internet of creating resources to do small acts of leadership and have hard yeah, conversations yeah. with our parents at home. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, just to spotlight that one that was on the podcast recently and might be interesting to listeners. Yes, it sounds like a perfect match to this topic as well. Perfect. Great. Thank you, Bailey. Thank you.